It's the 6th of August, 2021. This is a Room Now podcast, and I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.com. This week, it was a banner week at the FDA, a new drug approval that you should know about. We've got a lot of information about safety and pregnancy in this report, and also we have a case and a question from Down Under in our back talk section at the end of the podcast. Let's begin with a study of gout. Who better to look at gout than men? Where do you find all the men with gout? That would be the VA. The Veterans Administration did a nice study of a large cohort of gout patients over two different time frames, 2005 to 2014, and like other studies, did show an increasing incidence of gout in that population. In fact, the prevalence rose from 4.2% to 5.6%, 5.8% by 2014. The interesting thing that they noted was that urate-lowering therapy was fairly steady throughout that time course, meaning that 46% of people in the beginning and at the end were taking urate-lowering uh, drugs like allopurinol. Uh, is that good or bad? I think that that number should be going up. Um, most patients with gout are tend to be undertreated. Most, as you know, even though patients are on urate-lowering therapy, less than 40% actually achieve targets. So again, more aggressive use could lead to better outcomes, but uh, I think these data suggest that we could do better, and that's partly your responsibility, partly the patients. You need to work at this. A nice study of almost 1,800 women with autoimmune disease who became pregnant looked at the influence of acetaminophen use on outcomes. Turns out that about 74% of this cohort took acetaminophen, uh, and they followed them uh, during the first five months of pregnancy uh, to see what would happen. When they compared those who were taking the highest doses to those taking no acetaminophen, so that would be the fifth uh, um, uh, quintile um, versus no dose, they actually saw a, a significantly increased risk of preeclampsia, a hazard ratio of 1.62, a 62% increase in the risk of preeclampsia. Now, does that mean you shouldn't use acetaminophen in pregnancy? I don't think so. I think that the in this study that being on acetaminophen in high doses is a marker for someone who's having trouble, that, that they're having a rocky course, a difficult pregnancy, and it's not surprising that, that you might have some events like this happen. Um, whereas the comparative group, they were doing swimmingly well, taking no acetaminophen, um, so it's an unfair comparison, if you will. You do know that autoimmune patients, rheumatoids, lupus, etc., do have higher rates of things like preeclampsia and um, uh, preterm births, um, but they do not have higher rates of, of, of malformations and whatnot, either due to the disease and or the drugs that we take. So again, is this going to change my use of acetaminophen? I don't think so. Uh, another nice study was published this week about um, uh, children born to mothers who had rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and in this particular study, they looked at the outcomes on down the road, meaning they looked at kids when they were in elementary school and during their school development and what happened as far as their development. So does being having a mother with a disease, inflammatory disease, affect you? Does having a mother who has an inflammatory disease and takes biologics and, and all kinds of drugs? You know, this is a big unknown by the FDA and by most people. This is a, an enlightening study in that it basically says that um, kids do well as far as their test scores and their development 
in their um, elementary school years. So this is encouraging data that I think that certainly the FDA would be excited about. Another study of kids this week looks at the use of canakinumab in kids with systemic JIA. This is a, a retrospective cohort study of 80 children. Um, and turns out of that 80, um, 12 were given canakinumab after they originally were treated with anakinra, were doing well and in, um, had clinically inactive disease and they transferred over from anakinra to canakinumab uh, and they continue to have clinically inactive disease. So that's 12 down out of the 80, that, remain, that remains 68 that were started on canakinumab for the treatment of systemic JIA. They had active disease. Uh, and when you look at uh, outcomes either six months or 12 months later, about 60% of them were able to achieve clinically inactive disease off of steroids and on canakinumab. That's good news, but I'd certainly like to see that number better, but it still is very encouraging. Um, those who did not respond were more likely if they had many more joints. Uh, the number of people who had active joints, especially joints greater than five joints involved, and a prior history of macrophage activation syndrome led to um, basically non-response. There were a few cases of MAS in kids who were taking um, canakinumab. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, another systemic disease, Kawasaki's disease. This is a, a meta-analysis that looked at whether or not anti-cytokine therapy, that would be, you know, IL-1 inhibitors, IL-6 inhibitors, TNF inhibitors. These were studied for randomized controlled trials of almost 500 patients, uh, and they compared anti-cytokine therapy or monoclonal antibody-based therapy um, against the standard of care, which is IVIG. Uh, turns out that um, monoclonal antibodies and cytokine-directed therapies did not affect the uh, frequency of coronary artery abnormalities. Uh, it did reduce um, maybe the number of cases of drug resistance, but nonetheless, uh, I think the standard of care there remains IVIG. Uh, a nice study from John Varga's group looked at scleroderma patients and the predictive biomarker um, and a depot kind called CTRP9. Um, and this is something that they've been working on and in a cohort of 110 systemic sclerosis patients, some with diffuse, some with limited disease, they showed that 31% of these patients had elevated uh, adipokine levels, CTRP9, and that was associated with a lower FVC. Higher levels of this, uh, of this adipokine were associated with disease progression of their lungs. And then uh, uh, the converse is true too. Having low levels of CTRP9 was associated with FVC stability, meaning their lung function did not change over the period of evaluation. I like positive studies in scleroderma because we need more of them. Uh, the RISE registry has been involved in uh, looking at a large cohort of rheumatoids and following them. As you know, they do clinical variables um, and they measure both RAPID3 and CDIs in that cohort. This retrospective analysis of the cohort of RA patients says that comorbidity is quite common, but that interestingly, comorbidity didn't affect the type of DMARD therapy people were getting, but that comorbidity um, did um, lower the odds of achieving your target disease activity, meaning remission, low disease activity state. 
So outcomes are certainly affected by comorbidity. This is important. Why? Because we all recognize this. We all certainly know about comorbidities, but I think it's like the weather. We talk a lot about it. We do nothing about it, meaning we hope that this is something our primary care doctors are going to do for our patients, but that's, there's not much evidence of that. I think you have to bite the bullet and be very, very proactive in managing comorbidities. Uh, speaking of comorbidities, what happens when you have comorbidities in um, the spondoarthropathies? Uh, in the United Kingdom, they have the, um, the British Society of Rheumatology Biologics Registry for RA and also for ankylosing spondylitis. They've got over 2,000 patients that they have followed, and they have shown that almost half their patients, 44%, had one or more comorbidities. Turns out comorbidities were increased, were associated, for each comorbidity you had, there was a 0.4 unit increase in BASDI levels, that's the measure of disactivity in SPA, and a 0.53 unit increase in spinal pain. So comorbidities have been shown to be big players in disease activity uh, for a lot of disorders, and now we're seeing it for the spondoarthropathies. Again, common comorbidities seen in this particular trial uh, or cohort study was um, um, depression, heart failure, peptic ulcer, each of which was associated with more disease activity. Interestingly, not so predictive was CRP and SED rate in this analysis. So, again, another call for going after comorbidities and being aggressive about it. One of the things we commonly see in psoriatic disease is nail disease. Um, estimates are that 40 to 50% of patients with psoriasis will have psoriatic nails. And in this review that's published in Journal of Rheumatology that we uh, put out there for you, uh, it says that nail uh, disease is nail psoriasis is associated with a greater risk of enthesitis, which means that you could probably be diagnosing psoriatic disease, uh, early psoriatic disease, by looking for nail disease and looking for enthesitis as forerunners to psoriatic arthritis. Uh, an analysis of postmenopausal women who had fractures, these are women over the age of 50, um, in fact, a really large analysis is over 66,000 of them, finds that um, the development of a fracture um, leads to a greater risk of subsequent fracture, regardless of whether this first fracture was traumatic or not traumatic. So postmenopausal women getting a fracture, it doesn't matter. You need to assess them for osteoporosis and appropriately treat. You would be shocked, and we've talked about this here before, the number of people who have first-time fractures, elderly men, postmenopausal women who do not undergo an evaluation for osteoporosis and then subsequent therapy. It's actually a large unmet need. So the big news this week was the FDA approving anafrolamab, uh, a new drug, an alpha interferon inhibitor for patients with um, adult patients with moderate to severe active systemic lupus erythematosus who are receiving standard therapy. That would be background therapy with steroids, hydroxychloroquine, azathioprine, mycophenolate, etc. This comes after uh, a long development program where a uh, really positive phase two trial, anafrolimab looked great. Dr. Fury presented that data at ULAR several years ago. And then last year, we saw the data from TULIP1 and TULIP2, two um, uh, very large trials, similarly designed. TULIP1 failed with an SRI4 outcome, and TULIP2-1, 
showing that anaphrolimab was better than placebo when added to background therapy. The cumulative evidence of these trials was basically that patients with active disease, especially active skin and joint disease, will do well with anaphrolimab. Patients with active nephritis or, or, or really serious organ involvement were more or less excluded from this trial. Uh, and so there, there is a warning in the label that says that, that this is not currently indicated for people who have more organ disease like nephritis that still not, uh, there's not enough evidence and proof to make that statement. The drug called Safnello, S-A-P-H-N-E-L-O, Safnello. Uh, it is, uh, again, novel in that it is an alpha interferon inhibitor. Um, and uh, interestingly, even though that is a key mechanism to lupus activity and damage um, in the TULIP 1 and 2 trials, over 80% of patients had the alpha, uh, alpha interferon signature, but that did not predict response to therapy. So you shouldn't be doing um, uh, uh, mRNAs or, or looking for an interferon signature as a means of determining who should get the drug or not. Uh, I think it's important that that, that be said. And plus, that's not generally available. Um, patients can go on this drug uh, on background therapy of steroids and immunosuppressives. Uh, as it is an alpha interferon um, uh, targeted therapy, there will be a higher risk of zoster, meaning that if you can get your patients uh, vaccinated against zoster at the start of therapy, that would be, I think, a smart move in patients who are going to go on anaphrolamab. Let's end with a case um, from Down Under, Daniel Lewis. Let's see what he has to talk about. Hi, Jack. Daniel Lewis, rheumatologist from Melbourne, Australia. I have a 57-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis, very well controlled on baricitinib. Six weeks ago, she developed ophthalmic herpes zoster infection and she now has post-hepatic neuralgia which is difficult to control. She has been off baricitinib for six weeks and her disease is flaring and my question is whether there is any data indicating the risk of a further shingles infection by restarting baricitinib. Thanks for your thoughts. Thanks Daniel. Um, interesting case. Um, of course we don't know um, whether or not this patient has received vaccination against uh, shingles, but that's clearly the answer here. Um, a few things in the case. Number one, being off of baricitinib for a serious infection like shingles, um, two weeks, no problem. Four weeks, they're going to start to flare. Six weeks, they're going to get in trouble. You know, again, the, the, the onset of action with the JAK inhibitors is fast, hence, the converse is true that the withdrawal of drugs leads to a fast uh, recurrence of disease activity. So there needs to be an immediate plan. Certainly it makes sense that in someone having severe um, shingles, especially ophthalmic um, branches being involved, you worry about that, you have stopped the drug, you treat aggressively um, with antiviral therapy. But I would quickly go back on baricitinib and I would quickly um, institute um, vaccination with the, um, the Shingrix, uh, the, the two vaccine administration. Uh, and, and here, I, I would do it in spite of the age. You know, the cost of this in the United States is about 
$300 to get that done. I think it's important to get that done. Your question is, if you reinstitute the baricitinib, is she at risk for reinfection with shingles? And the answer is yes, because she's not covered. Certainly many of the patients who went into the trials with Shingrix um, were people who had previously had episodes of shingles uh, and that, that was prevented in those trials. Similarly, patients in clinical trials with JAK inhibitors with a prior history of shingles, um, when they were allowed to be in trials, there were cases of reactivation of shingles. The only way around this, because again, JAK inhibitors do increase the odds of, of getting shingles, is to basically vaccinate against it. I don't think you need to be vaccinated before you start on a JAK inhibitor. I would. I often, uh, I'll make that request before the patient starts, but they, uh, at least they get their first dose. They got to wait two months to get their second dose. I still want them to start as soon as possible. Meaning, Daniel, I would say start your patient back on baricitinib. Tell her to go get the the, the Shingrix vaccine. Um, right now, there are some studies saying that it's best to get it before as opposed to getting it while they're on the drug, but it still does work in those on the drug, maybe not quite as well, but in this situation, you want to protect the patient. That's it for this week on the podcast. Be sure to go to our, our website to check out these citations and more. Also check out our therapeutic update that's running this month. It's called Expert Selected Abstracts from ULAR 2021, wherein they discuss abstracts on spondyloarthropathies and Stills disease. I think you'll find that interesting. Tune in next week. We'll see you then.